Growing up, I was a big fan of Madeline Langle's A Wrinkle in Time series. I recorded an episode about the beloved book shortly after launching the podcast back in 2018, and it's one I think I will probably come back to again in the future. It's a little different every time you read it. Recently, though, I was reminded of the fact that Meg Murray isn't the only main character in the Langle universe who is worthy of our love and attention. I read A Ring of Endless Light for episode 184, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but Vicki Austin is giving Meg a run for her money. Just a little bit, though. There's room for all the gals. As I learned in my research for this episode, A Ring of Endless Light is the fourth book in the Meet the Austins series, which debuted in 1960. It was published in 1980 and named a Newbery Honor book in 1981. I haven't read any of the other books featuring the Austins, and I felt up to speed on all of the characters in no time at all. You'll hear all about them in a few minutes, but here's what you should know in the meantime. Vicki Austin and her family are spending the summer with Vicki's minister grandfather on Seven Bay Island. Her grandfather has been diagnosed with leukemia, and they want to be with him as much as possible. During the trip, Vicky reconnects with her ex-boyfriend, Zachary Gray, and an old family friend named Leo Rodney, who both, along with an older boy named Adam Eddington, compete for her attention. Unfortunately, Vicky also must learn a lot about death and grief. On a happier note, she learns that she can communicate with dolphins using ESP. It's a big summer for her. On this episode, my guests and I discuss the full spectrum of love and loss, paying special attention to the book's focus on faith, science, and the intersections between the two. We also compare and contrast Vicky's potential love interests and chat about how mental health is portrayed in A Ring of Endless Light. I will offer a trigger warning here. As we get into matters of PTSD, depression, suicidal ideation, loss, and trauma. Next, let me introduce you to my guest. Claire Legrand is the New York Times bestselling author of several books for young readers, most notably the Imperium Trilogy, as well as the Cavendish Home for Boys and Girls, the Edgar Award-nominated Some Kind of Happiness, and Sawkill Girls, which was nominated for both a Stoker Award and a Lambda Literary Award. Her new book, Extasia, is now available, and you'll hear more about it at the end of the episode. Claire lives in New Jersey, and you can visit her at claire-legrand.com and subscribe to her newsletter for bookish updates and behind-the-scenes exclusives. We cover a lot of ground on episode 184, and Claire was along for the ride for every minute of it. Conversations like that are a lot of fun for me as the host, even when they touch on heavier subject matter. You'll find some heavy subject matter, but mostly updates about the show and my reading and my golden retriever, Irving, on SSR's social media feeds. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. Every week, I worry that I'm starting to bore you by listing off all of the ways you can get involved in the SSR community in these episode intros, but I am just so excited about how our family is growing and how much support I've been lucky enough to receive for the show. We have a lot going on, and I don't want you to miss a minute of it. First up, we just started a new month in the free SSR Book Club, a group that gives you the chance to circle back to Kidlit and YA just like I do on the podcast. In March, our amazing SSRBC volunteer leader, Rachel, is taking members through a conversation about Maud Hart Lovelace's Betsy Tacey on Facebook, Slack, and Google Hangouts. If you are a Betsy Tacey fan or have always wanted to give these books a try, there's no time like the present. Sign up at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub. I'm also always on the lookout for new SSR Book Club leaders. So if that appeals, send me an Instagram DM or an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. While we're on the subject of book clubs, we are also underway with our discussion about Sex Cult Nun by Faith Jones in the Patreon book club, which is called SWR or Shit We Read. I lead these book clubs myself every month. Patrons gain access to lots of other goodies too, including newsletters, bonus episodes, reading recap videos, direct input into the books covered on the podcast, an invite to the SSR Discord channel, and more. Plus, you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping the pod keep going and growing. Become a patron for as little as $1 per month at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. You can also support SSR with a five-star rating or review on your favorite podcast app. I've been working with the team at Libro FM for years now, 
and I can promise you that they will get a five-star rating from me every time. Libro.fm is an audiobook marketplace and listening platform that offers an alternative to shopping with giant companies. It's true. Now, when you listen to the books on your TBR, you can actually support independent bookstores. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSR podcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Claire. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we both had to try really hard not to get ahead of ourselves because as soon as we connected on this little like recording meeting that we have, we looked at each other and we were like, oh my gosh, this book. Yeah. And we were like, no, we have to say, like, let's save it till we're recording. And then I gave you my whole spiel. And I don't know about you, but now I'm like, I don't, e- I don't even know where to start with this book. I don't know where to start either. So here's my relationship with this book. I did not read this when I was younger. I read A Wrinkle in Time. Speaking of other books that Madeline Langle wrote, I loved A Wrinkle in Time and read it a million times. And then I read A Wind in the Door, which is the sequel to A Wrinkle in Time. I read that a few times, loved it. Tried to read A Swiftly Tilting Planet, which is the next book in that series. And I think I was too young to understand it. And so I sort of gave up and I've never picked it up again. And I really want to now after reading this. But those are the only books of hers that I've read. So I knew nothing about this book. And I really, I didn't know what to expect, except I knew that I would like the writing style because I like her writing style. It's very clear and not fussy. But I didn't know anything other than that. And I was really surprised by how much this book moved me. How do you feel about this? I have so many feelings. Okay, so my history with this book, and I, of course, have already mentioned this this in the intro, but we were so excited that I haven't even gotten a chance to name (laughs) drop the title in the scope of this interview. Oh, right, yes. (laughs) The book that we're talking about is A Ring of Endless Light by Madeline Langle. Mm -hmm. And I have gotten so many requests to cover this book on the podcast, which is why I included it in the list that I sent you. Um, and I had heard from your your publicist that this wasn't a book that you were familiar with. Mm-hmm. And she asked if that was okay. And I was like, that's totally fine. If Claire would prefer to read something that she is familiar with, we can do that instead. But we decided to move ahead with this book. And I didn't read it when I was a kid either. I thought maybe I had just because I think my assumption was that this was in the Wrinkle in Time universe, just because most of my connection with this author is also to Wrinkle in Time. So I was like, oh, of course, this is going to be more like Meg and Charles Wallace. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading it and I was like, I've definitely not read this book before. And I I understood pretty quickly why so many people wanted me to cover it on the podcast, just because there's so much to it. And because I like to dig into things so much, like I'm sure people were like, oh, she's gonna have a lot to say about this. But a couple of quick little facts about the book. So it was published in 1980 and it's part of a series, which I didn't realize until I was doing my research after I read it. And it's not the first book in this series, which is very unusual to the way that I read. Um, I don't know about you, Clara, but like I tend to get a little like nervous when I know that I've picked up a book and I haven't read the books that come before it. Are you that way? I am. I like to have I like to have as rich as possible of a context before I dive into a book. So I like to do my research beforehand. I like to have read the previous books in the series. And so I was I approached this with a bit of trepidation myself. I considered reading the first three books in the series before reading this, but I, I ended up not. And I, I think she did a really good job of establishing these characters and their relationships and their history for people who are just being introduced to this family with this book. I wasn't confused at all about what they had been through and who they were and what their relationships were to each other, 
which I really appreciated the way she did that. And it didn't feel like, okay, now I'm going to tell you all about this family that I've spent three books with. You know, it felt very organic. I agree. And I'm glad that I didn't know that it was the fourth book in a series when I started reading it because I read it as either a self-contained novel or as the kickoff to a series. And it read comfortably to me that way. And on this podcast, of course, we revisit our fair share of like Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley High. And those books have such a formula to the way they like drop you back into the world. It's like people joke that it's like, you know, page three of every Babysitter's Club book is when you get the rundown of all the babysitters. But (laughs) this book, she doesn't do that and she doesn't need to. But the series, which focuses on the Austin family, actually started in 1960. So if if you think about the number of years that Madeline Langle spent writing about this family, it's pretty amazing because this book came out in 1980. So the first book is called Meet the Austins. The second book is called The Moon by Night. The third book is called The Young Unicorns. Then, of course, we have this book, A Ring of Endless Light, which I do think is the one that is most popular. Like, I haven't really heard about these others as much. Book five is called The Arm of the Starfish, and book six is called Troubling a Star. Um, And this series has won the Newbery Honor, which is a big deal um, and well-deserved for this writing, of course. (laughs) One other fun fact that I'll share about this book, because it kind of blew my mind, and I don't know how I didn't know this, as a passionate viewer of the Disney Channel when I was growing up, but this book was a DCOM, a Disney Channel original movie. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) I know. So 2002, and wait till you hear about the cast. So as Vicki Austin, the main character, Misha Barton from the OC. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I know. I mean, my little like early aughts teenage heart is freaking out. And then Jared Padalecki of Gilmore Girls fame, Dean is in it. Oh. Yeah. He's Zachary. Okay. Okay. There's like, I couldn't find a trailer for it, but I did, of course, have to look it up on YouTube. And I did find a few scenes. And there's a scene with like Jared Padalecki, like coming in on a jet ski and being like rich, like jerky Zachary. And then Ryan Merriman, whose name I know I remember from my like aggressive Disney Channel watching days. So I had, I mean, and I watched a lot of Disney Channel original movies. So I cannot believe that this was not on my radar, but this book was adapted with its fair share of changes for the Disney Channel. So listeners, if you've watched this movie, please let me know. Is it worth fi- I wonder if it's on Disney Plus. I should actually look it up. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. But let's get into this plot because as we've established, there's a lot to dig into. And the way that I see it, there's kind of like two overarching themes that we can talk about. And I'd love to know what you think about this. I feel like this book is about death and love. I 100% agree with that. Okay, so where should we start? Do we want to start with death or love? Let's start with death. Okay. And then move to love because that's, yeah. I like that. Heavy I like the way that feels. Lighter. Yeah. Yeah, it is 11 a.m. on a Friday morning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, in reviewing my notes before we jumped on today, realized that a lot of Vicki Austin, who's 15, a lot of her reflections on death and loss in this book actually feel sort of like painfully timely, I think, for us in 2022. Because what's really interesting is that in this book, it's almost as though Vicky's eyes are being opened for the first time to real life and like how brutal it can be. And she kind of meditates on the fact that like everywhere she looks, there's death. Like there are all these people in her immediate circle who are passing away. Her family is experiencing all these losses and not only that she talks about how she watches the news and there are all of these like terrible news stories and it's exhausting to keep up with and I was struck by how much that resonated with me in 2022 like we talk about the news cycle and I just I think it's interesting how timeless that feeling is and how even like I'm not 15 but I still feel like I'm encountering that feeling on a pretty regular basis yeah I Definitely agree with that. And as I was reading, I was thinking about how timely this felt in the sense that I think a big part of Vicky's arc in this book is coming to terms with this sort of cosmic grief of understanding for the first time the the cruelty of the world directly juxtaposed with its awesome beauty. And I think we're all collectively, globally wrestling with this, this grief of what we have all been going through during the pandemic. It's opened our eyes to certain things about the way society works and the way certain people are protected while others are not. That is very troubling for some people, very revelatory. And I think we're all trying to figure out how to accept that, how to process it, how to move through it, and how to hopefully do better in the future. And 
I think, you know, I was talking to one of my friends the other day and we were talking about how tired we were much more so than, you know, it was a regular work day. We were working from, you know, eight to five basically. And everything else in our lives at that time was normal. But then we started talking about why are we so tired and why is there this sort of feeling, this undercurrent of sadness that's kind of pulling at us. And I think as we kept talking about it, we realized that is this grief of, of seeing what has happened to so many people during the pandemic and feeling that very deeply and not quite knowing how to process it, being still in the process of figuring that out. And a lot of people think and act as if we're done with all of that. And, and we're not. And I think the effects will linger for quite some time. And everything for me personally has been laden with this sense of, of grief. How do, we, how do we move through a world that can be so full of cruelty and pain and loss? How do we move through that and also at the same time try to find joy and love and see the beauty that exists right next to that pain? So I agree with you that it felt very relevant. Mm -hmm. It felt almost too real at times. You know, it gave me that good ache in your chest that happens when you're reading a good book that really touches you. And I think that that's what Vicky is dealing with most of all. Like, yes, she's dealing with the, the illness of her grandfather and she's dealing with the affections of three very different boys. And she's dealing with seeing all of these and hearing about all of these terrible things happening in the world. But I think those things are all of a piece with this wrestling with the grief of living that happens very profoundly when you're an adolescent, but continues to resurface throughout your life. Yeah, I think that's all so well said. And I think Vicky feels things very deeply, which I think is a really smart choice on the author's part. I mean, I don't need to tell Madeline Langle or <laughs> Madeline Langle's fat. I'm like, good job, Madeline Langle. Love that you made that choice. She feels things very deeply. And I think that this book, while it examines death and grief, it really is at the same time taking a good hard look at mental health because mm -hmm. we're tracking Vicky's experience through first a funeral. The book opens at the funeral of Vicky's family friend, Commander Rodney. And we learn throughout the book that all of these other forms of death, incidents of death are sort of circling around her and the people she cares about. Her grandfather has been diagnosed with leukemia. And like, that's actually why her family is staying with him for the summer, because they know that they're just trying to enjoy their last time with him. Uh, her ex-boyfriend, Zachary, comes back into her life. And it turns out that he's lost his mother since they last saw each other. There's all of this stuff on the news about violence against porpoises. And, and Vicky has adopted this new love of dolphins so that she feels that very deeply. And then she runs into a little girl named Robin when she's picking up blood at the hospital for her grandfather and realizes that she's ill. And at the end, she literally is holding this little girl in the hospital emergency room when this little girl Robin dies. I mean, that is deeply traumatic. And then we also have layered on top of that, Zachary, her ex-boyfriend, who speaks pretty openly about his attempts at suicide. So I think that like we are struck with each one of these discrete events in a way that, as you said, like really pierces your heart. And then we also watch Vicky figure out how she's going to cope with it. And I think you see that the most at the end of the book after she has this traumatic incident at the hospital with Robin, who goes by Benny. And Madeline Langle doesn't put these words to it and she doesn't have to. But it seems to me that like, Vicky is very clearly experiencing PTSD, depression. There's a lot of description about how she just like sits alone in her room all day. Nobody can connect with her. She has this like lovely family that I'm obsessed with. Yes. And she just like doesn't want to talk to anybody. And I think it's really powerful to be able to revisit or in this case come for the first time to a book like this as an adult because I realized that when I was a kid, I don't know how much of that I would have gotten. Yes. I wish I had read this when I was a kid, though, I have to say. So I, I am someone who lives with chronic clinical depression, as well as anxiety disorders. And unfortunately, I didn't find 
this book or other books like it when I was younger. And I wish that I had because the way she, the way Madeline Langle wrote about these feelings Vicky is experiencing, she didn't say, like you said, depression on the page. But the way she described it felt so immediate and real. And she did it with language that that felt lyrical and and very clear and precise and felt like if I were a kid reading this, the language that she chose would have struck a chord with me and would have really made me sit back and think about the feelings that I was starting to experience at that time, the symptoms of the disorders that I live with. And I, I think that would have made me feel very seen, much less alone. I think it would have made me feel validated and very comforted because yes, she experiences this horribly traumatic event, which by the way, I did not see coming. I was reading it with my mouth open, like, oh my gosh, the way she described the death of this girl, Binny, was just very upsetting. And I can't imagine experiencing that. And then, yes, Vicky has a really hard time afterward, understandably. But the book ends with this sense of hope that I find very encouraging and very comforting, even as an adult. And I know I would have as a child. And I think that's one of the things I liked most about the book is the sense of hope that's sort of interwoven with all of these very painful moments and very difficult stories about grief and loss. It's almost like it, those moments of hope, they're holding the reader's hand and guiding them through this really heart-wrenching story with the knowledge that, yes, this is difficult and there are going to be moments where there's this line in the last chapter where Vicky is having her hard time and she said, the darkness was deep and there was no dazzle. Because earlier in the book, oh, I know, <laughs> shivers. Earlier in the book, there was this line about how everything has this deep and dazzling darkness. Like there's light along with the darkness. There is beauty along with, along with the pain. And in this moment of her ultimate, just lowest point, she said the darkness was deep and there was no dazzle. And being able to show the readers of this book that, yes, there are going to be moments like that. But hope can be found again, which it is found again for Vicky. That is so powerful. And I don't think readers, especially young readers, can see that enough. Before I say anything else, I want to acknowledge how much I appreciate that you shared your story with me and with our listeners. And I wish that you had found this book, too, because it sounds like it really would have been a friend and books are friends. And listeners, if you have a teenager in your life who you think could benefit from feeling seen um, in their experience with mental health, I would highly encourage you to hand this book to them and to talk to them about it because it is heavy, especially if they're on the younger side. But Claire, thank you for being so open. And I do think that there is a hopeful quality to this book. And as we're having this conversation, I realized, and again, like as I was putting my notes together, I'm like, I don't know how to distill everything from this book into like a one hour conversation. It's just impossible. But as we talk about the notion of hope and the way this book does leave us with some hope at the end, I think it does give us a chance to talk about some of these sort of like modes of finding hope that I think are introduced, especially early in the book, because there's a lot in this book about religion Mm -hmm. and also about kind of the tension between faith and science, Mm -hmm. which was kind of like the signature Madeline Langle thing. Like when we started getting notes of sci-fi I was like okay like I get this part with her this is what I thought was going to happen Zachary's talking about like the science of of freezing his mother's body like cryogenetically cryogenically Mm -hmm. I guess I don't know Mm -hmm. what the long version of that word would be there's this debate between him and Vicky's family who they're people of faith her grandfather is a minister of some sort um, and is at the end of his life and is of course considering these big questions a lot himself so He's talking about his feelings about like Zachary's approach to death and the way that he's processing the loss of his mother in context of science. And then even like the whole subplot with Binny, like Binny's father, I would assume is a Christian scientist because that's what I was thinking. Yeah, we learned from Binny's mother that Binny has been diagnosed with, I believe, leukemia. And so she requires, of course, like a lot of care and medicine, but her father won't allow her to take the medicine. And so her mother brings her to the hospital for blood transfusions um, sort of secretly, but whenever they try to bring medicine home, the dad flushes them down the toilet. So even then we have some tension between 
faith and science. The, like this man is a cri literal Christian scientist. Um, and I've only read a little bit about Christian science, but from my understanding, like this is probably what we're getting at here. And then also we have the development of these relationships in the book that ultimately offer Vicky hope as well. And so I think Madeline Langle is playing with like these different modalities that I feel like people often use to use as lenses through which to process their grief. Like a lot of people lean on their faith. Some people lean towards science. Some people lean on their people. And what I like about this book is that there's no conclusion. Like there's no sense that one of those things is better than the other. She clearly is not taking any sort of side on the big question of religion versus science. And I'm sure that that was a very intentional decision because I certainly would not want to be mandating that in a book written for teenagers or really a book written for anyone. No. But I just, I like that we get a little bit of everything and Vicky gets a chance to sort of situate herself. And I don't really know that Vicky knows at the end of the book how she feels about those things, except that she's like happy she has the relationships that she does. And I think that ambiguity, that sense of she doesn't have everything figured out yet by the end of the book, I think that's important, right? And I also love that, yes, there's this, we assume that Benny's father is a Christian scientist and works in terms of absolutes. He rejects science, he flushes the medicine down the toilet. On the other hand, you have Vicky's grandfather, who likes being read to from the Bible, but he also likes being read to, he, he likes uh, people reading from science books. He likes to learn about the way the world works, both from the perspective of a scientist examining and researching and experimenting, and also from the perspective of someone of faith who is who is coming at the world from a more poetic, less quantitative point of view. And I love that marriage of those qualities in him. And I loved how the other members of the family reflect those qualities, but like in different ways and in different proportions, like John and Susie. So John is Vicky's elder brother and Susie is her younger sister. And they're both very different from Vicky. They're, they're more black and white about things. They're um, quicker to judge. And you get the sense that their thinking is not quite as fluid as Vicky's is. But even then, Madeline Langle, she never wrote those characters with any sort of judgment. She wasn't clearly cueing in the readers to this way of thinking is bad, this way of thinking is good. There was always a lot of compassion and genuine interest used when exploring those different points of view, even with Zachary, who we'll get to later. I, I loved that. I loved that she was writing from a place of compassion, curiosity, openness, and non-judgment, which I think is something very valuable for younger readers, especially to read, but even older readers, because especially when you're thinking about these bigger questions, why are we here? How can kindness and cruelty exist in the same breath everywhere? How can the world be so beautiful and also be so awful at times? All of those big questions, they're questions we're considering our entire lives. And especially for younger readers, I think the openness with which Langle approach to these questions is really important. And hopefully for kids who are reading this, it inspires them to approach these questions openly and consider different points of view and allow themselves to evolve as well, to realize that it's okay to believe one thing about how the world works when they are this age, and then to learn more and have their views change as they get older knowing that that's okay. I, I just felt very like this sense of clear-eyed, warm acceptance throughout this entire book. And I like that even with Zachary, and I guess he was the character who was hardest to take for me. <laughs> Same. I, I don't feel that Langle was completely harsh on him. I think she approached him much as Vicky did with frustration, yes, but also compassion. And I loved that. I agree. And I think as much as we we could continue to dive into the heartbreak of this book for probably another several hours, <laughs> we have now mentioned Zachary a few times. So it mm. feels like the natural moment to move into our the love portion of our conversation. But before yes. we do that, I want to detour briefly because I don't know that I don't know how much we're going to get to talk about this part of it uh, while we're discussing love. We have to mention the dolphins. Oh, I loved them so much. <laughs> so basically, everyone, Vicky in 
getting to know Adam, who is one of the three young men competing for her affections, in getting to know him and helping him with some of the research that he's doing, she realizes that she has this really natural, deep connection with dolphins. It's described as being something like ESP. Mm -hmm. And her scenes with the dolphins are kind of like sprinkled throughout the book, especially at moments when she's feeling especially sad. And the dolphins just kind of like know that she's sad. And so they come find her. And it's interesting because Adam's like kind of pissed about it because he's been working with them for so long. And like his whole mission is to figure out how to communicate with them. And Vicky literally just thinks like dolphins, like, can you come pick me up? And the dolphins come swoop under her and jump into the sunset. And I was thinking about how as a kid, I was so fascinated with both dolphins and ESP. Mm. And so this is like perfect (laughs) for young readers because I'm sure I wasn't the only kid who was similarly fascinated by those things. Oh, yeah. I mean, reading it now as a 35-year-old woman, I'm like, you know, I was giddy during those scenes like, oh, wow, how wonderful would it be to be able to have that very natural, very powerful communication with such amazing, intelligent, playful creatures. And so I, I, again, I wish I'd read this as a kid so that I could have experienced that very like kid-like joy of such a such a wonderful idea. I loved those moments and I love that Vicky, because she is so like her grandfather, because she is so open and curious and because her brain works in terms of very deeply felt emotions and imagery, I love that she was the one who was able to communicate with these dolphins so powerfully. There was, I can't remember how exactly she phrased this in the book, but I think, I think it was Vicky's grandfather who spoke about how scientists are like modern day mystics mm-hmm. and that some of the best scientists were also poets. And so I love this appreciation that she showed through those moments and through Vicky's scenes with the dolphins, this appreciation of both science and the sort of more mystical, perhaps faith-based power. Those two things can live in harmony, and they do in Vicky, because she is intelligent, and sometimes she makes astute scientific observations in her conversations with Adam and the people he works with at the lab. But she also has this beautiful sort of spiritual openness that I, I feel like she's a real person. I'm like, Vicky, never lose that quality. Like, that's so precious and rare. And I think that's one of the overarching messages in this book is, you know, Langle encouraging people to live with that kind of openness and wonder and curiosity about the world, despite all of its cruelties. Yeah, because we're sort of led to believe that the reason that she's able to connect with the dolphins is because she has that openness. And Adam phrases it sort of in a way that like is triggering for her because he talks about it in terms of more like childlike wonder Mm -hmm. and she does not want to be thought of as a child by this boy she has a crush on no she's nearly 16 I mean I'm almost 16 years old like have you not seen the sound of music like I'm almost at an age where I can sing I am 16 going on 17 it's a big moment in a young girl's life exactly huge I mean I was waiting to be 16 so that I could do that cool dance in the greenhouse the gazebo yeah like Mm -hmm. Yeah, with leaping the, from the benches. Uh, I mean, I we hate the guy, but it's a very dreamy dance sequence. And her dress. I Ugh. mean, don't even get me started on the costume. And then they're in the rain. Yeah, like, very uh, romantic. Just get Rolf out of the picture and we'll be good. But anyway, so I digress. I, yeah. I, digress. <laughs> I will take a sound of music moment anytime I can get one. But I think it's worth noting too that Vicky's family generally leans toward like research. Like her dad mm-hmm. is the scientist. Mm-hmm. Her brother John is working at a lab. Her younger sister Susie wants to be a veterinarian. So I think she's realizing like, oh, this is something special that I have because she's a poet and that's made her yeah. different in her family. And I don't know that she's yet gained an appreciation for how cool it is to be different. But connecting with these dolphins has made her realize that there is like real power mm-hmm. in the way she sees the world, but also it's allowed her to like sort of cross into this world that her family tends to play in more, which is the world of research, because she's now helping Adam with this big dolphin project that he has going on. Okay, so let's talk about these men. Oh, boys. They're boys. They are, yes, some more than others. (laughs) Okay, so there's three of them. There's Zachary, Mm -hmm. there's Adam, and there's Leo. And are you a Gilmore Girls fan? Sadly, no, I've never watched it, but I know a lot about it just from afar. Okay, the only reason I ask is because 
I don't know if you're aware of this, but in a lot of the Gilmore Girls discourse, there's like these three boyfriends that Rory has. There's Logan, there's Jess, and there's Dean. And people tend to sort of pick a team. And my my opinion is a very unpopular take. So I'm not going to share it again because I've already put myself out there with this opinion several times and people don't like it. I'm so curious. Yeah, but I was, as I was reading this book, I was trying to kind of like align characters from this book with characters from Gilmore Girls. And listeners, if you are not familiar with this book, I would say quickly, the best I can do is that Zachary is kind of like, Jess with Logan's money. Adam is like, I would say Logan's personality without money. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. And then Leo is full on Dean, but more friend zoned. Okay, Claire, I know that that's not helpful to you, but I'm just trying to give people a shorthand. I'm, I'm fascinated and well done. Thank you. I tried my best. Okay. <laughs> so I, I realized as I was compiling my notes that almost all of my notes from this book are about Zachary because I was rage highlighting mm. so much. He is terrible. And with all due respect to Madeline Langle, I don't think she even knew how terrible he was. You know, I think that's true. I also think that I also had that same feeling. There's a scene with Vicky and Leo toward the end of the book that I also felt was horrible but it wasn't given the proper this is horrible treatment in the text. And I think both that and the larger, let's just call it the Zachary problem. (laughs) You know, I think that's probably a product of the time in which she wrote this when people weren't as fluent in talking about behavior that Zachary displays, you know, very what's the right word for how he treats Vicky? There are so many. There are um, so many. He's very so many. like, he's very cavalier. That's one of the milder yeah. words. He's, he's reckless. He's reckless. He completely like discounts what she feels all the time, yeah. like dismisses her feelings. He likes to scare her. Yeah. And I think part of that is tied in with his own tragic internal death wish. Right. As you mentioned earlier, he has dealt with, you know, thoughts of suicide. So I think part of that recklessness stems from a very great sadness and pain that he carries. And I think that Madeline Langle did portray that in a way that felt real and okay to me. What I didn't like is what you said, where Vicky did kind of stand up for herself sometimes when he displayed that behavior, but no one ever flat out called him out for his behavior and took him to task for it. Like, this is not okay. And here's why that wasn't in the text. Subtextually, I guess it was kind of there. But I would have liked to see more of that. I would have liked to see it in plain English on the page. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was very uncomfortable in like, all of his scenes, both because I was thinking to myself, somebody take this child. And I don't know, put him into, he needs to be in therapy. He needs to be around adults who are not going to take his crap, but will also guide him toward a healthier outlook and healthier behavior. But also I wanted Vicky to run away, girl. This is not, this is not good for you. This is not safe. But I, I do think that it was, it felt very true the way that Vicky processed her feelings mm-hmm. about Zachary. She was talking about what, what, what did she describe it as the little lizard? She described it as the little lizard that ran up and down her body, basically code for this guy turns me on. Right. And I think that is a very powerful thing to feel at any age, but especially when you're a teen girl, like coming into your body and your desires. So I understand why she didn't run away screaming, you know, and totally cut him out of her life. But I wish that Madeline Langle, author from on high, had like told us, hey, this is not okay, the way he's treating you. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things in the sauce specifically with his treatment of her. So he he pressures her physically quite yes, a bit. Yes, it's, And in doing so calls her hun, which super mm. grossed me out and was just kind of one more symptom of the patronizing yes. attitude that he has toward her throughout the book. Mm. Um, and he's patronizing toward her both in terms of her age, but also because he is so wealthy and he yes. like calls her his country mouse. Like he mm. seems to kind of like get off on showing her how much he has and how much he knows, which is such an unattractive and dangerous quality. Yes. He also 
is actively reckless and dangerous and he thinks it's funny like he makes a joke about trying to hit an old woman with his car and accelerates as though he's going to do it he's also getting his pilot's license and there's a moment when he actually tries to crash the plane and obviously there's like a conversation to be had here as you mentioned about his history of suicidal ideation and that's something that in the real world, I would hope would get some attention, of Mm -hmm. course. And I think now in 2022, we know that that's a serious thing. But I don't love the way it just feels like it's playing to this like bad boy sensibility that's like on the same level as a guy who cuts class. Like he's not just like a bad boy. He's a really dangerous kid Mm -hmm. who has a lot going on that he could benefit from help. And then I think the only other thing that I would mention about him. And this is not the only book where we see this, but I think the way Zach comes in and is basically like, Vicky, I need you. Oh God. Yeah. As part of his kind of reflection on, on his wish to die. He's like, I, I need you or else I'm, I'm going to do it. And that is a narrative that we see often. And I think what worries me about that is like, when it's not explicitly on the page that that's dangerous, mm-hmm. I think it can feel romantic sometimes to teens. Yes. And I think now in 2022, there is more education a little bit. But I know that when I was growing up, like I feel like the pop culture that leaned in this direction plot wise, it was sort of produced with like a little bit of a romanticism. And this is not romantic. Like Vic, this is too much pressure for Vicky. Yeah. And it's too much pressure for Zachary. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not the right situation for either of them. No, it's not. And I also really hated those moments. They made me deeply uncomfortable and frustrated. When he would say things like, oh, you're so good for me. Yeah. You know, okay, so you recognize that this girl is awesome, and yet you treat her horribly and set out to frighten her at every opportunity. And that was very frustrating to read. I think in the text, it like, very gently touched on that a couple of times. I think it was Vicky's grandfather. Yes. Who said. Not your cross to bear. Yes. Yeah. Um, that there was, oh gosh, how did he put it? It was really, um, he said something like there's, this is not how she put it in the book. Maybe it wasn't this blunt, but he said something that implied that it's kind of like narcissistic to think that you can take on this, yeah. this boy's issues and like fix him. Um, yeah. And it's not your responsibility to do that. I wish that there had been more of that. Yeah. I wish that her family, who clearly none of them liked him, had no. had stepped up a little and, and intervened and tried to help her realize that this was not safe. Her grandfather also asks her, and I love this, how much do you really owe this guy? Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was great and such like a grandfather thing. Yes. Um, even kind of removing the like faith element, which mm-hmm. a lot of this conversation with the grandfather is coded in a John Donne sermon about every man can only carry one cross. Yes. Um, but I, I love this idea. Like I think most grandfathers would be like, do you really owe this guy that? Like, let it go. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So let's move on to Adam, who I like really want to be team Adam. Like mm-hmm. well, I think I probably am mm-hmm. team Adam. Adam is this older boy who's friends with her, her brother, John. They work at the lab together. He's the one who brings her to the dolphins and they have all these magical experiences together He is resistant to getting into a relationship with her. And I can't say I totally understand the soap opera-esque drama that took place the summer before that's making him nervous to get into a relationship. But it seems to me he was involved in some other research and he was in a relationship with the girl he was working with or who was somehow involved in this research. And for some reason or another, he, he feels that he is to blame as a result of his connection with this girl because somebody died. So he thinks he's responsible for that death. And I don't quite understand the mechanics of it, but the the general idea is that he is like wounded from this relationship. And so he really likes Vicky, but he's scared to jump in to, to dating her. Is that fair? Yeah. And I agree that I was similarly puzzled by that yeah. element. I thought that it was perfectly adequate to just stick with the I'm 19 you're 16 you're really amazing but you know you're my friend's kid sister and this is not appropriate I think that's a very real and interesting conflict to explore without that weird backstory stuff that I didn't quite understand because I think that that tension between um, at that age you know the difference between 16 and 19 
is huge as far as life experience and self-awareness and maturity. And so I think that would have been really interesting to explore that more in depth. And I, I liked Adam a lot. He, he reminded me, he gave me like Calvin O'Keefe vibes a little mm, bit. Totally. My first like literary crush. Um, yeah. So I really liked him. I think that that was a really important relationship for Vicky. Like as she moves forward, I don't know if they'll stay in touch. I don't know if it's hinting like at the end of the book, the, the final scene is with the two of them. Right. And I thought it ended kind of abruptly, actually. I was like, oh, that's that's the end of the book. It's because there's more, Claire. There's I more know. books. So I don't know if they're setting up, you know, a Vicky Adam relationship yeah. in, in future books. But I think regardless of whether or not she ends up with him, I think that was a really good experience for her. It taught her some things about herself. And I think it was also very valuable for her to feel to feel valued and respected by somebody outside of her family and to have a relationship with a boy that was not really physical at all. Mm. It was, there was an attraction and there was chemistry, but they never went there. And yet she remarks, I think a couple of times how intimate their relationship feels, even though they haven't experienced physical intimacy. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing to explore. And I, I would have loved that as, as a teen. Cause I, I was like that. I did not have, you know, physical relationships with anyone in high school. And I felt this immense pressure to. So I think that was a really, a really lovely thing to include. Well, Adam is such a lovely foil to Zachary in that way, mm -hmm. because Zach wants to be like so physical. Yeah. And I think that Adam just like shows up for her in all the right ways. Like yeah. he shows up for her emotionally. He sees her in a way that I think she is not used to being seen. And yeah. there's this kind of lingering feeling toward the end of the book that they are connected in a way that's similar yeah. to the way that that Vicky is connected to the dolphins because he just like shows up literally like in person physically when she is at her lowest point and so he's definitely like the right choice for her if there is yeah. a right choice among these three these three boys when she's 15 or 16 years old like if she's if she's here to pick the like the guy I'm fully on board with Adam. Um, I don't know that I have much more to say about him, but I liked him. Like I liked reading about him. And then there's sweet Leo. Oh boy. Leo Rodney. So Leo is the son of the family friend whose funeral Vicky was attending at the beginning of the book. And they have known each other for a really long time. Their parents are friends. And I always, I love, I love like a family friend portrayal. Mm -hmm. It's such a specific relationship. It's unlike any other friendship you have when you're a kid. Like these are people that you would not be friends with at school. You would not be friends with on like the soccer team. You would not be friends with at dance class. Like this is strictly a home friend. Mm -hmm. This is a home friend. And Leo seems to have always kind of had a little bit of a crush on Vicky and it's always creeped her out. <laughs> and she's like actively avoiding him. But now she feels sad because he's lost his dad. And so she's trying to be a little bit more open to his kindness. And she's just trying to like be more patient. And I think the thing that I like the most about Vicky's relationship with Leo in this book is that this girl knows how to set a boundary. With Leo anyway. <laughs> with Well, yes, with Leo, <laughs> for sure. Like she is so clear with him and mm -hmm. respectful. Like she's not rude to him, nope. but he tries to kiss her several times. He wants to take her out on dates. He doesn't understand why she's spending all this time with Zachary, all this time with Adam. And he's been here all along and she doesn't want to like to go do activities with him. And she is just very direct with him. She says what she wants. She says what she doesn't want. And I think to see a 15 year old girl mm. who can do that is so cool because I am 31 years old and I find boundaries very difficult. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I kept wishing, okay, Vicky, take this. Yes. awesome boundary setting mm -hmm. and transfer that to Zachary, which to be fair, she did a few times. I mean, she definitely communicated to him that she was not ready to be physical. She definitely scolded him for reckless driving. But I wish that she had said, okay, this is dangerous. I'm setting this boundary of no more Zachary. <laughs> I wish that she had done that. But she did a decent job with him, all things considered. And then with Leo, yes, I like how compassionately she communicated with him. I care for you deeply. I want to be friends. You are no longer a slob. She called him a slob right. to herself at the beginning of the at the beginning of the book. And I think she grows a lot through her relationship with Leo. She comes to realize 
that people grieve in different ways and people uh, people need different kinds of friendship and different kinds of communication. And I think she learns a lot about that through Leo. I did feel bad for him when he took her on the date to the inn and it was like super shabby and tumble compared to the flashy Zachary date. I did feel a lot of compassion for him. And I hope that they remain friends, you know, in the story world. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I think Leo also showed Vicky that people can change. Yes. And I think that, and, and you sort of were hinting at this already, but I think that, that her friendship with him showed her that there are different kinds of love. And I think yes. that when you're a teenager, it feels so binary sometimes, often because of the way like other teenagers are talking to you about relationships and like, oh, like you must have a crush on this person or like, oh, you love them. <laughs> and there's like a certain implication there. And it's really beautiful to realize that like you can love someone as a friend and, yes. you know, Vicky as a straight young woman can have a non-sexual, mm -hmm. still emotionally intimate and meaningful friendship with a boy that is very loving. And I think that that's an important thing for teenagers to realize. So I'm glad we got to see absolutely that as part of this book. I think we could talk about this book for another eight hours. Oh, we I mean, absolutely could. <laughs> we absolutely could. We I think we scratched the surface in a really good way. Claire, I know that you didn't read this book as a kid. So we can't compare like your recent experience with A Ring of Endless Light to your previous experience with A Ring of Endless Light. But I am curious how it compares to maybe your expectations of it, especially because you had read other Madeline Langle books when you were a kid. You know, I think because my experience with her has been the Wrinkle in Time series, I expected more of a sci-fi, you know, fantasy element. I wasn't expecting it to be as down to earth and grounded and real in this very pure way. And when I say pure, I don't mean innocent or naive. I just mean completely undiluted. There was a, a certain purity, a certain earthiness to her language and to the way she approached these very difficult subjects. There was a directness that I really appreciated and really enjoyed. And I remember feeling that way, although I don't think I would have articulated it that way when I was a kid. I remember feeling that way about A Wrinkle in Time and how she approached really terrifying moments and really heartfelt moments with this sort of compassionate directness. I don't know that I would have reread this one as a kid as often as I reread A Wrinkle in Time, but I think it would have impacted me very deeply, again, because I think those moments when both with Zachary and then with Vicky, especially later in the book, when things like mental health are discussed, I think I would have really, really appreciated that, but it might have hit home so profoundly that I wouldn't have wanted to revisit that very often. I guess that's kind of how I feel about it. I don't think I have anything more to say on that subject. What about you? Like, how did your experience of reading this compare with any preconceptions you had? That's an interesting question, just because for the podcast, I read such a range of things. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think that it, it's very different than what I expected mm -hmm. based on what I know of A Wrinkle in Time. It is so much more grounded. Yes. The writing is similar and similarly fabulous, of course. I think that what strikes me the most is that I did not feel like I was reading a book about kids. Yes. I think that when you write about teenagers, I think a lot of authors can lean young or lean old. Like, I think it's really hard to write a teenager that really feels like an exact teenager. Yeah. And I think Madeline Langle does that. I think they do feel like teenagers mm -hmm. for the most part. I mean, there's some like dated language just in the way they communicate with each other. That reads right. very 1980 to me. But for the most part, they feel like real teenagers with real teenage thoughts mm -hmm. and concerns. And at the same time, I think that any listener could and should consider picking this up because I felt like I was reading a book about like adults grappling mm -hmm. with things that I grapple with in my grown up yes. life. So I think that's what was most interesting to me. And what was most surprising to me in contrast to both A Wrinkle in Time, and also just a lot of the other books that I read for the podcast. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think that there is a certain respect that Madeline Langle has for her readers. Yeah, that comes through very, very profoundly in this book. She does not shy away from 
describing the more horrible moments, like what happens with Binning at the end of the book and the grief and fear that everyone is experiencing in terms of their grandfather's illness. I think it's best encapsulated by mentioning how Vicky says to herself, I love how Adam talks to me, except for the moments when he freaks out and calls her a child. But most of the time he treats her like a colleague. He treats her like an adult who for whom he has a lot of respect and he respects her intelligence. And I feel like that's what Madeline Langle does in general, but specifically with this book, I felt like she was saying, okay, the world is messy and cruel and confusing and beautiful. And let's talk about it like human beings, not adult to kid, but human being to human being. And I think that's a really, really powerful thing. And I would also encourage people to pick up this book and give it a try. It does feel a little bit old fashioned, but I don't think that takes away from the power of what she's exploring. I agree. Well, and I'm so glad we got to talk about some of these big issues in such great depth. What else have you been reading lately, Claire, that you would recommend to our listeners? So three things. One is adult, one is YA, and one is middle grade. Um, <laughs> so uh, recently I read an adult fantasy book called Piranesi by Susanna Clark. So she wrote Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, and this is a much slimmer uh, book. And it is beautifully written. The voice is unique and impeccable. And much like A Ring of Endless Light, there is this sense throughout the entire book of stopping to appreciate the beauty of what's around you, no matter what that is. And even when people are cruel, realizing that in general, being alive and experiencing what it is to be alive in this world is a precious thing to be appreciated and thought about and revered. So um, thematically, I feel like it's kind of of a piece with A Ring of Endless Light, but very different execution. And then um, a YA book that I wanted to recommend, which deals with mental health issues in a similarly lovely way, both direct and compassionate, is When the Stars Lead to You by Ronnie Davis, which is just one of my favorite recent YA books. It's lyrically written. It addresses issues of mental health with such tenderness and such realness. And it also explores the kind of impact and power relationships can have when you're a teen and how everything feels so immediate and everything feels so life-changing and how that is valid and important. I love that book. It's just, it feels like the kind of book you want to curl up with on a cold, dreary winter day because it is written with such warmth and and kindness and openness, much like a, a Ring of Endless Light. And then just a general middle grade recommendation for people who like the mix of reality and fantasy that you can find in Madeline Lingle's work and also her exploration of themes like mental health and family uh, dynamics and figuring out how to exist in a world that is full of such cruel contrasts sometimes. Um, the work of Corianne Haydu is one of my go-tos when I do school visits and talk about mental health. I recommend her books, specifically The Someday Suitcase and Rules for Stealing Stars, which was her first middle grade book. Both of those deal with deal with really tough topics like grief and um, difficult family dynamics in ways that, again, feel like Corey is taking the reader by the hand and showing them the truth, but also giving them hope at the same time. And so I feel like these are all thematic read-alikes for A Ring of Endless Light in various ways. Definitely. What perfect matches. Well, I will include links to all of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. And I, of course, will also include links to your best-selling books, Claire. Um, And as this episode (laughs) drops in early March, you have a new book that's been out for a couple of weeks, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about it. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. This is my 11th book, I think. It is a young adult horror novel. And when I say horror, it is, yes, indeed, very scary, very gruesome. It is not a light read. So um, it is basically um, The Handmaid's Tale meets The Craft. So it is about a young girl named Amity who's who lives in this idyllic village, except for the past few months, people have been dying. Uh, they've been murdered in increasingly horrifying and gruesome ways. And all of the deaths have been men and boys. And she is trying to figure out who is behind these deaths. Is it the devil? If it is, is she going to fight him? Or because of 
other things that I won't get into right now, is she going to end up joining him? So it combines some of my favorite things, an exploration of the psychology of cults, how they're formed, why they're formed, why people join them, and how our brains can be reprogrammed. And also, I love the connection linking nature, women, and magic that surfaces in a lot of the books I read. And I explored that in Ecstasia as well. That's the name of the book, by the way, Ecstasia. And then I had this conversation with a friend of mine a few years ago, in which we were brainstorming what my next horror novel should be. And we came up with this idea of a girl who is the patron saint of rage. <laughs> so all of those things combined to form Ecstasia. It is a very, very intense book, not a light read, but I am very proud of it. And I think in a much more gruesome way, it deals with some of the things we've talked about today, actually. How do you hold the contradictions of, of life and reconcile the fact that people can be both beautiful and kind and loving and also cruel and manipulative? How do you move through the world holding those contradictions in your hands? So I'm very proud of that book. It is available everywhere and I hope you enjoy it, but read it with the light on. Read it in the right headspace and with the light on. Yes, exactly. Well, congratulations, listeners. Go check out Extasia. Claire, I'm so happy that you came on to the show. It was so meaningful to have this conversation with you. And I'm glad that we both had a chance to read this book finally. I am too. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a really powerful experience, unexpectedly powerful reading this book. And I'm grateful. Yeah, you never know what you're going to find when you pick up an old never know. piece of kidlet. Well, thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.